0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, band. And thank you guys for being here this morning. Welcome to Dwell. We are back in uh, the fulfillment series so uh, hopefully you became wise enough through the Proverbs uh, Summer Wise series, because we're done with wisdom, back to just talking about Jesus. Hopefully that's exciting. Uh, but uh, today I want to talk about something uh, that I feel like I've been noticing a lot lately, and it is sort of this us versus them kind of mentality. Uh, maybe you've picked on, up on it. Uh, it feels like you have to like choose a side on everything these days and then defend your side to the death. Now, I am of a certain opinion. Um, and I'm not going to tell you that opinion until later because I don't want it to spoil this, all right? But I am of a certain opinion. Uh, it's a taste. It's a preference. It's not really all of that serious. Uh, I voiced such an opinion to someone this week, and uh, they did not take, it, take kindly to it. In fact, they uh, attacked me for this very position and this opinion that is just something that I actually like as a person, as a human being, just like they're a human being. Uh, and yet, I felt, felt oppressed and abused and victimized uh, for holding this opinion. And what's weird about it is it doesn't affect anyone, right? It's just like, this is just what I like. But I couldn't just like it, right? I wasn't allowed to. I was, I was attacked for it. Uh, the opinion is, of course, that I like pineapple on pizza. Uh, I, I know, I know. If anybody walks out right now, I get it, right? Like, some people, they just, man... I don't know what it is. So the people that like pineapple on pizza, this guy, he's gone. Look, people are walking out right now. Man. People that like pineapple on pizza, they're like, hey, I like this thing. I like vanilla ice cream. I like, you know like Butterfinger candy, whatever. I also like pineapple pizza. And then people that don't like it are like, that's not pizza, you're a monster, right? And they like take it personally. Like I just offended their mother. I don't like banana peppers on pizza. That's disgusting, right? Like that's kind of gross, but you don't see me fighting anybody about it. But pineapple on pizza, I'm basically like an oppressed minority group it feels like over here. Uh, I probably shouldn't joke about that. Anyway, uh, there is a temptation very seriously though to ally yourself. Uh, with others whose, like, opinions that you share. And then you, like, stand against the people that are opposed to you, right? Like, that's just kind of how we deal with things these days. Think about, like, your political opinions or, like, your different stances on cultural issues. And here's the thing that we really, really need to talk about today because I don't think I could convince you on the joys and beauty of pineapple on pizza. The thing that I need to talk to you about today is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you would call yourself a Christian— then you need to really think about this kind of us-versus-them kind of mentality that exists even within Christians, the way that Christians can sometimes feel like the us and everyone else can feel like the them. There's always been this temptation... Uh, In our faith just because like one of the core tenets of our faith is that Jesus is the only way So naturally you can see where that would lead you to like say well Then there's all of us over here and there's all of them over there and they are opposed to us and we are opposed to them and then when you combine that kind of like temptation that has existed throughout Christianity and combine that with like this modern-day social discourse you can very easily see how we arrive at an us versus them kind of place. So for Christians, especially those of us who may feel like, and maybe even legitimately experience, being sort of like under attack by the them, it can be very easy to get this kind of like us versus them kind of stance. And then what happens is you feel like, I need to stand up for things, right? Like I don't want to be bowled over. I can't be pushed over on these certain things. Maybe you have to stand against the political left for forcing some sort of ideology on you. Maybe you have to stand against the political right for sort of hijacking the faith and co-opting it to use it to reserve their own agendas. Or maybe you just feel this urge to, like, distance yourself from, like, secular people, the people out there in the world, so to speak. Whatever it is, it's easy to feel this way. I think you'd be hard-pressed as a Christian living in 2023 to not have experienced this to some degree, Right? And we all have this question, like, what are we supposed to do? Maybe in, like, a smaller way to wonder about, like, that, that friend of yours who's not a follower of Jesus, and you're looking and you're saying, like, what can we agree on? What can we not agree on? How can we work together? What are the things that we should be aligned on? Maybe not. What's a relationship supposed to be? And so what we're going to do today is hopefully, like, try and answer some of those questions, maybe develop, like, a better relationship between the us's and the them's in our world, and we're going to do that by taking a look at the way that Jesus did that when he had this surprising interaction with a woman that he probably shouldn't have even been talking to. And we're going to ask the question, can that point us to a better way of being us and them? I also need to apologize here at the outset. I'm not going to talk about any, or I'm not going to talk very much about the feeding of the 4,000. I am sorry about that. Uh, but we did feeding of the 5,000 like a couple months ago. I mean, come on. This is just less people. And he did it with more bread and fish. So this is really not even all that interesting, really, when you think about it, okay? Uh, But also, while I'm there, let me use this as an opportunity to point you towards uh, the Dwell Church podcast. It is phenomenal. If you've never listened to it, uh, there are no ads, right? So that's a plus, right? You don't need to know anything about Casper mattresses or anything like that. But if you want uh, to—this is an ad in the middle of a sermon, so I'm sorry about that— if you want to catch up on everything that we've done in Matthew so far, you could literally just pop in your earbuds. I mean, if you got a long commute or you're driving to, you know, northern Idaho, you could probably crank it out in one trip and be all the way caught up in uh, Matthew, which is like pretty cool, and it's it's pretty cool to listen to. Uh, so check that out if you want to check or if you want to catch up or want to read or hear about what we talked about when we went through uh, the feeding of the five thousand. Anyway, commercial over. So, let's get back to the text. This is verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, What's going on here because that does not seem very Jesus-like. You know how sometimes when people read scripture, you tune out? It's okay. We all do it. It happens, right? Somebody's reading scripture up here and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm just going to sort of like think about what I'm going to eat for lunch. So, if you were tuning out, then you probably didn't notice the fact that Jesus would, being a little bit rude, maybe, here, might be a good, like, interpretation of this, right? So, why is that happening? Well, first, we have to answer the question, what is a Canaanite woman? Now, uh, is anybody in here Canaanite? Anybody? Okay, no, so I'm not going to offend anybody. That's good. All right, so a Canaanite woman would have been a person who was not an Israelite. Uh, Typically, they would call them Gentiles in Scripture, which is the Bible's word for everyone who isn't an Israelite. And if you know your Bible history, then you know that Canaan, where a Canaanite would be from, was supposed to be a promised land flowing with milk and honey, and it was promised to the Israelites. Uh, The Canaanites were the people who were already living there. They were most likely like a looser collection of tribes than the Israelites were. And what's really interesting to this story today, and this is where, you know, Bible history gets cool and fun. I can tell from your faces that you're as excited about this as I am. What's interesting about this story today is that the Canaanites did not really fully exist all that much during this time. Like, so this is like now, like Israel has been in the Promised Land for like over a thousand years. They've been taken over by different uh, huge groups of people, and right now they're under Roman occupation. And so it's a really weird thing for someone to be identified as a Canaanite. And in fact, the word Gentile would work just as well in this story, and yet... Matthew goes out of his way to say, hey, this was a Canaanite woman. This is sort of like uh, going to southern Louisiana today and looking for, like, a French Canadian from the Acadia region, Uh, which, if you don't know your southern Louisiana history, uh, that's where, like, the Cajuns come from, right? So, like, Acadia turned into uh, Cajuns. Uh, But it would be tough to find anyone with some sort of, like, clear lineage back to, like, you know, Paris or something like that uh, when you're in the swamps of Louisiana. And this is sort of the same way. Like through generations and times, it would be kind of difficult to find someone that is just like fully just a Canaanite. But Matthew here calls her a Canaanite to show us something. And I think what he's trying to do, if you remember, I know it's been months, but if you remember back in the fulfillment series, Matthew loves sort of highlighting things from the Old Testament to make us understand what's happening with Jesus. Here he is highlighting, hey, these are the enemies of the people of God. Gentile could just be anybody, right? That's just somebody who's not an Israelite. Canaanite kind of like signifies and would cue to like someone who was an Israelite living in that time or someone who loves the Old Testament. It would cue uh, that this person was like a bad guy. This person was someone that they should be in opposition to. And here Jesus seems to react in keeping with that. He says, no, I'm not for you guys. I'm here for the children of Israel. This brings us to our first sort of like thought about us versus them. It's really easy to read a passage like this, especially since we haven't, you know, gotten completely through it yet. It's really easy to read a passage like this or even the Old Testament and come up with this idea that the Bible is kind of written on an us versus them system. As if God looked at all the people of the world And he said, here's everybody. Now I'm going to draw this much smaller circle, and I'm just going to put the Israelites inside of it. And I like them, but everybody else can go kick rocks or something like that. Like, that's kind of how it can feel when you're going through the Old Testament. And I think it is one of the easiest and most common kind of like responses to scripture that people have to just be like, I'm not going to get into that because clearly God is very exclusionary. He's not into all people. He just cares about one specific group of people and not everybody else. But it's simply not true. So here's what I want to do. I want to actually like try and take a second. It's going to be feel a little bit like a commentary. Uh, I know none, some of you guys have not even been listening since I admitted my pineapple on pizza thing, but this is going to be like a little bit challenging, even more challenging for you, perhaps. Uh, but I want to actually erase our fears and concerns about this in Scripture, Okay. This is one of those weird things where, like, you might hear a little glimpse of it or a little taste of it and still carry around this idea in your head that God is exclusionary, but it's simply not true if you read Scripture accurately. And I hope that you become a little bit more comfortable with your God knowing that he never wanted Israel to be an exclusive nation. So we have to go all the way back to the beginning. This is Genesis 12. This is the calling of Abram, who would become Abraham. God says this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is the call of Abram, soon to be Abraham in Genesis 12. It's one of the covenants that God made with his people. This is truly the beginning of the Israelite people. So this divide between the Israelites and the Canaanites, it comes back to this very moment. And I want you to take notice of the focus of what God is saying to Abram in this moment. The focus is not on Abram. Do you notice that? Like, it's almost like he is great and blessed as a byproduct of what God wants to accomplish. His blessing is sort of like having a company truck, right? Like, God's like, we're going to give you this truck but it's so you can do all this plumbing work around the city. So, yeah, you get to drive a brand-new truck, but it's so that you can accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. Here, God says to Father Abraham and thus to his many sons, the Israelites, that they were never meant to be blessed for their own good, but they were actually blessed that they might bless others. Or, if you don't believe me here, check out this from Moses. This was at the giving of the Ten Commandments. It says in Deuteronomy... Uh, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, I want you to notice that's Exodus 19. This is right at the giving of the Ten Commandments. These are not secret and hidden verses like deep in Habakkuk, right? Like, I'm not doing any sort of, like, bait and switch. Like, I know you guys think the Old Testament, God was exclusionary. I'm going to, like, find the secret verse and maybe interpret it this way. No, like, these are the core tenets of the israelite people these are like the central covenants between god and them and here you have in both of these examples opportunities where god is saying hey it's not about you it's actually about the people around you because what does he call his people the israelites here he says they shall be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests what do priest do they stand between people and god they act as agents of God to people. They tell people, hey, this is what God wants you to know. They actually make sure that people are reconciled to God an in right relationship with God. And God here is saying to the people of Israel, this is what I want you to be. I want you to be a nation of priests. That doesn't mean a priest to each other, right? Like priests are out there trying to priest each other. That doesn't work. No, a nation of priests, meaning they would be a group of priests to all the nations, that they were meant to be the go-between between God and the rest of the world. And Not only these examples, but we see also throughout the Old Testament rules about how to welcome in the outsiders around you. You know that stuff where it gets, like, really difficult to get, you get bogged down in, like, reading Leviticus or something like that? Like, intermixed in kind of crazy rules about, like, cooking a goat in its mother's milk and other weird stuff like that. You find, actually, rules, like, what happens when someone fears God and they wants to want to join your community? Israel was not meant to be an exclusive community. You see God's divine power to defeat evil regimes around them that actually wasn't just a blessing to Israel, but it was actually a blessing to the other people that were around them. And also, if you read the Old Testament and see it in its historical context, you see that the Israelite people were actually setting a benchmark for justice and fairness in the ancient world that was completely unparalleled with the people around them. When they were following God, they should have been a beacon of light and justice and connection with the one true God to the rest of the world. This is what Israel was supposed to be to the world. The problem is they failed. It screwed up all the time. In fact, the Old Testament is like a story of just constant, sort of like God chasing after his people and his people constantly rejecting him. Moses was impatient. Joshua didn't finish the job. David cheated. And thus, the world suffered. See, that's the flip side of this blessed to be a blessing kind of idea. When you are not actually following after God, if you are blessed to be a blessing, then no one else gets to receive that blessing either because of that there was a need for someone else to step in to stand between everyone else and god this holy nation had to be replaced with one holy man who could actually be the sacrifice once and for all so that everyone could be reconciled and that guy was jesus okay cool cool good we're there yeah (laughs) clapping very nice All right, so now we get to this Jesus. All right, I just gave you the entire Old Testament in like seven minutes. So uh, I hope you're as excited about this as I am. Now we get to Jesus, and we find that he looks at a woman who wasn't an Israelite and says this. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow, all right. That's not even from the salty Jesus translation, people. That is just regular old straight-up Jesus, plain English, seemingly calling this lady a dog. Okay? That's not cool, I think, right? Here's some things to take maybe take the steam out of this, okay? Because it's very easy to read this and be like, Jesus, uh, I thought you were the nice guy in most of these stories. This doesn't seem nice. So first, this was probably a common and expected usage of the time. Jesus was sort of saying what everyone else said. We must resist the impulse to, like, read this in, like, modern-day 2023 English and just sort of, like, put all of our thoughts on this. Now, clearly this would be, like, wrong to call someone a dog today, but there's a possibility that it was just sort of, like, cultural vernacular back then. And I'm not trying to just excuse away something that might have been, like, you know— mean-spirited or something like that, but we know enough about Jesus to know that it's not typically how he uh, reacts to people. We also know enough about history to know that, like, uh, this was kind of, like, common language back then, and so maybe this isn't as bad as maybe it, like, sounds like when we hear it here. Second, it's possible that he was being kind of ironic or even, like, goading her here, like, wanting her to get to the right answer especially given the way that she responds she says in verse 27 yes lord yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table this sounds like a little like dickensian at first look you guys didn't even know i knew what that word was did you you're really impressed right now but kind of like ebenezer scrooge jesus is kind of ebenezer in this he's like a pox on ye, shall i take this gift and throw it to the dogs i'm sorry my accent's bad <laughs> She's like, "Hi, sir, but even the dogs get crumbs sometimes. And he's like, bah, humbug. No, that's not how it works, right? I think that's how it sounds. What if you read it instead a little bit more, like it's not right that I give the bread for the Israelites out to others. And she says, but, sir, I need what you have to offer, and you were kind enough to give a little to the rest of us. Which is why Jesus responds in this way. Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Which for as much as unclarity is around like how we interpret what Jesus was saying, like this part is clear. And her daughter was healed. Shows that in spite of the huge cultural divide that existed between Jesus and this woman, that in every way she could have and should have been his enemy, he heals her daughter. Now, if you remember, Jesus does a lot of healing in the book of Matthew, so it gets really, really easy to gloss over this. I want you to, like, for just a moment, realize that this was a human being who was concerned about her daughter i mean i want you just to think about like the insanity of this in this moment right like the 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 sort of like soul crushing difficulty of this that she here has a sick sick daughter at home and she says to herself i've got to find somebody to help and has to leave her daughter not knowing what's going to happen to her go out wandering the streets she hears about this jewish guy that's walking around maybe he's done cool stuff maybe he's a magician maybe he's some sort of like demon-possessed person. I don't even know what he is. The desperation that would lead a Canaanite woman to go to a Jewish teacher and beg him to heal her daughter is significant, is profound, is painful to think about, right? She's taking a terrible gamble here, missing precious seconds that could be her daughter's last in hopes that she might save her life. She was probably wondering if he could help her, if this was even real. She was definitely wondering if he would help her, right? She knew she was Canaanite. She knew he was Jesus, I mean Jewish. Their people had been enemies for centuries, and yet Jesus looks on her, says, Great is your faith, and grants her deepest desire that her daughter would be healed. And then this happened. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, you may not know, unless you're up on your first century Near Eastern geography, that this area that Jesus was in was a heavily Gentile area. So it bears, uh, or it stands to reason that the people that he was actually healing here uh, were actually probably not Israelite. They were probably Gentile. Another clue is a phrase that was used only once in the entire book of Matthew. And it says this in verse 31, the very end it says, And they glorified the God of Israel. Not just they glorified God, they glorified the God of Israel. This should tell you that this great crowd was probably mostly Gentiles since they highlighted that it was the God of Israel who was their Savior. And then immediately after this, Jesus goes on to feed the 4,000 of probably Gentiles, right? Like that's the big uh, sort of like shocking revelation that you could probably just breeze right past when you're just reading through this in Scripture. Clearly God is being consistent here. God to Abraham, God to Moses, he says, you should be a blessing to the nation. You should be my priests to them. You'll be my means to reach the nations. And through your descendants, all the world will be reconciled to me. They didn't achieve it, but someone came along, and they, uh, through the years, passing through the generations, someone gives birth to someone else, someone gives birth to someone else, and now all of a sudden, from the Israelites, from the Jewish people, someone comes along to reconcile all the world to God, and of course, it's... Jesus, you guys are getting a little worse at this. Jesus comes to Israel first, but a little bit to this woman, a little bit to these Gentiles and others, and then sends his people out to the ends of the earth to everyone everywhere. So, that's all the background. What does this lesson have for us today? The first is that God is not exclusionary. He never has been. This is a good and simple apologetic for us. There's a lot of gnarly and confusing stuff in the Old Testament, but that line that God just randomly chose one race of people and doesn't care about anyone else is simply not true. Now you have a way hopefully to be able to describe it. It's kind of sad when you think about it the way that we like sort of like intake facts these days and, and sort of like what becomes truth like we love taking an easy answer that sounds right because it's easy to do that right like you're scrolling through you know youtube or TikTok or something like that and you hear these like life facts we don't like go and look those up you know we just like spread them to someone else like, it's like the flu or something, you know? Like, it just catches on to us, and then we go and sneeze on somebody else, right? Like, half of those, like, have you ever seen those videos they are like, I bet you didn't know that. And I'm like, I don't even know. This can't be true, right? And you do, like, 30 seconds of research, and you go, oh, that's completely made up, right? But most of the time, I don't even do the 30 seconds of research. For a while, I actually got hooked on this, like, grumpy old mechanic who would watch videos of, like, mechanics making tools out of like other tools and stuff and he'd be sitting there you know you've got like his little face in the bottom right of the screen has anyone seen these videos then you guys probably don't watch mechanic videos on like youtube but like uh so i'm like sitting there and he's like oh yeah you just spent three hours working on this tool that would have cost you 10 bucks and now you're probably going to get electrocuted have fun buddy right like that's kind of like his reaction to it or even me i've noticed this in myself It was just this past summer when I realized some of you in this room told me that caffeine doesn't stunt your growth. I believe that my entire life, that is what my mom told me. I never thought to do any research. I've even passed it on to my daughter, right? And now that I know, I don't know that I'm going to go back and correct it, right? Does anyone want to see a seven-year-old on caffeine? No, let's just keep the the lie alive, right? Caffeine may or may not stunt your growth. Who knows? No, I was too lazy to look it up until one day I finally did, okay? Still haven't told Evie, but I finally looked it up. There's absolutely no evidence that caffeine stunts your growth. And all of this is to say if we do that all the time with facts in your life, with truth in your life, what that probably means is that there is someone right now in your life that honestly believes to themselves that God is exclusive that God only loves a certain amount of people, that God, uh, from the very beginning, he only liked the Israelites, and now uh, he only likes Christians, and he doesn't love anybody else. And there's probably someone in your life right now that is thinking that because they have not had someone walking alongside them to be able to reveal the truth to them. There's probably somebody that thinks that God is choosy somebody that thinks that God is racist or homophobic or antiquated, probably because they've interacted with Christians who might embody all of those things. And that is just simply not true. But it's easier to believe. That's a dreadfully sad reason to miss out on eternal life with God. That's a dreadfully sad reason to miss out on salvation to miss out on heaven. And I'm not saying that to like, you know, trash our friends and neighbors who who don't, you know, think the way that we do, don't understand the same way that we do. I hope that like gives you a little bit of a, a passion and a burning and a concern for the people around you. Like if God has been loving and welcoming and kind and open to you, In spite of all of your failures, and you know that he wants to be that to your friends and to your neighbors, how can we let them continue living not knowing this truth? You can't force them to know it. You can't force them to agree with you. But it's pretty selfish just to keep the the truth to yourself. God, may it be that someone in this room answers the deepest and darkest concern about you and their friend's life. Next, this passage tells us that God uses the few to serve the many. This tells us about the way that God likes to work. He likes to take nations like Israel and bless the whole world through them. He likes to take the youngest in the family and have them kill giants. He likes to take 12 random dudes and have them change the world. He likes to take carpenter's sons and turn them into the sons of God, right? And this is not like right or wrong. This is just the way that God chooses to work into the world. It's kind of hardwired into the world. It's sort of like moss growing mostly on the north side of trees in the northern hemisphere. Or like how dogs chase their tails round and round. Like this is just the way that the world works. This is how God chose to make it work. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians er, 1, 26-28, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This is how God does business. So, if you look around and you say to yourself, like, ah, my church is too small to matter. Nobody in here would say that, obviously. We're huge, right? If you look around, you say, I don't know enough. I don't think I'm, like, the type of person that can go out and do anything important. If you feel scared, if you feel weak, if you feel whatever, just know that you might actually be exactly where God wants to be. Like, if this is the way or wants you to be, if this is the way that God works, then it would make sense when you're feeling those things that you might actually be doing exactly what he wants you to be doing that your church might be the exact right size to have the right impact in the place where he has placed us, that you might be the right person who knows exactly enough to be able to meet someone where they are. You might be exactly where God wants you to be. The last lesson that we can learn from this is a general posture of Jesus that I think we can emulate. We exist for the outsider. Do you see what was happening here? The people that Jesus was serving and healing here in this passage, they were the outsider. Check this out again in verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds come to him, remember, Gentile crowds came to him, bringing with them their lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, remember, these people were from a different culture. They were from a different religion. Uh, Whatever possible divides in society there were, they were separated from Jesus. And on top of that, they were lame and blind and crippled and mute. Can you imagine? All right, so back in this day, like the Israelites thought... Uh, especially the Pharisees, that if you were ill, that there was something wrong or wicked about you. Like if you had any sort of like physical problem, then they assume that that was because you were such a sinful and terrible human being. So all the Israelites around Jesus are thinking that. And then Jesus goes to the people who were Canaanites, the people, the Gentiles who were wicked and evil and opposed to the Israelites, and doesn't just go to the regular Gentiles. He actually goes to the worst of the worst of the Gentiles, these people that had these problems and illnesses. And Jesus goes out of his way to heal them. Jesus goes to the outsider. To the person that he wasn't supposed to love. The person he wasn't supposed to care for. Very simply put, if you look at your life and you find that you're not serving, you're not loving, you're not healing, you're not caring for the people outside of who might be your most natural comfort zone. Maybe outside of just Christians then you're probably not acting very much like Jesus and I think about this in my own life I've been like really like chewing over this the past like week or so like man it is like astounding how comfortable I am with like human suffering in my own like community like I mean if you've walked up and down Colfax like it's shocking what you might see And very often I think to myself, oh, well, that's not my responsibility. Those are not my people. But that is not in keeping with the way of Jesus. The same truth to Abram that he was blessed to be a blessing, the same truth to Moses that we are to be a family of priests to the rest of the world, and that same truth to Jesus that we should go out into all the world and make followers of him is true for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this truth is still true for you today. You are blessed to be a blessing. Everything you have been blessed with is meant to be a blessing to the people around you so that you might be able to point them to God. You as a family of priests is designated to be the priest of your neighbor. To go to them, to pray to God on their behalf to pray for them, to care for them, to bear their burdens, to be a go-between between them and the God of the universe. You are the one who is blessed by the Father, called by Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go to those who don't know him. And so the call today is to share what is good in your life with those around you. Even if, and maybe especially so, if they're different from you. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we thank you. God, that when we were separated from you, when we were enemies with you, God, that you made a way for us to be with you again, that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. God, we thank you for that kind and generous gift. God, I pray that today that you would work in our hearts to transform, to change us, to make us look more like you, God, to make us into the type of people that would go and serve the outsider, serve and love the least of these, God. We want to look like you, God. God, help us to know how. Give us the courage to live live it out. Give us the heart like yours that breaks for people who desperately need you. God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.